The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, it's a name that sounds like a pseudonym, but it was real. And a life that sounds like it was made up by a writer of Pulp Fiction. But that was real, too. Ursula Parrott, born in Massachusetts, educated at Radcliffe College, Harvard's sister school at the time, escaping afterwards to Greenwich Village, married to a New York Times reporter, pregnant secretly, not even telling her husband, married three more times, arrested on federal charges, rumored to be having affairs with some high-profile men, including Scott Fitzgerald and Sinclair Lewis. Oh, and along the way, she became a best-selling novelist, and for 10 years, she earned something like $15 million in today's money before falling from grace and dying in the charity ward of a New York hospital. We'll talk to her biographer, Marsha Gordon, and hear some of Ursula Parrott's novel, Ex-Wife, today on The History of Literature. Okay, hello everyone. Here we go. Welcome to the History of Literature podcast. I'm your host, Jack Wilson. We have a busy show today, so we're going to take a break from Emily Dickinson and head straight into our interview. Who was Ursula Parrott? Let's let her biographer, Marsha Gordon, explain. Okay, joining me now is Marsha Gordon, a professor of film studies at North Carolina State University, who's also written several books about film and celebrity. She's here today to discuss her new book, Becoming the Ex-Wife, The Unconventional Life and Forgotten Writings of Ursula Parrott. Marsha Gordon, welcome to the History of Literature. Jack, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So a lot of times I start with a question like, who was John Milton or who was William <laughs> Wordsworth? But in this case, I think it really is appropriate. Who was <laughs> Ursula Parrott? Yeah. Um, so first off, you've kind of started out the gate with the big question and the big reason I wrote this book, which is the answer is very few people on this earth, um, knew who Ursula Parrott was. I hope mo more of them know now yeah. <laughs> in the wake of the book's publication. Ursula Parrott was, in short, to cut to the chase, a best-selling author, a real public personality, um, screenwriter in Hollywood in the late 1920s through the 1940s. That's who she was in a kind of headline form. But she was not born Ursula Parrott. She was actually born Catherine Ursula Towell in 1899. And um, Ursula was the name that her publisher thought would work better as a first name. And Parrot was her first married name. And I think we'll get to these conversations about marriage and such yeah. as we have our discussion today. But she was born in Boston, educated at Boston Latin Girls School, very progressive women's adjunct to the venerable male institution. I went to college at Radcliffe University. So she was not part of the first generation of Radcliffe students, but she was not long after that. So she was kind of raised in a very progressive environment for thinking about women being full participants in public and intellectual life, or at least if not full, um, at least having a place at the table. Um, mm -hmm. So when she went to high school, for example, her parents had to commit that they would send her to college if she wanted to. That's one of the conditions of Boston Latin Girls School. So mm. she graduates from Radcliffe and in 1920, and then she gets married, uh, elopes to Greenwich Village, a very romantic thing to do. And you can imagine Greenwich Village in the 1920s, the real kind of maybe the tail end of the most bohemian years of Greenwich Village and moves there, has a child, uh, her only son, and then her marriage falls apart soon after. Mm. And this is the kind of precipitating event that informed, I think, both her intellectual framework, her literary framework, and also her kind of philosophical framework for grappling with what it meant to be a woman in the modern 
age. So she was born and raised at the tail end of the Victorian age and really saw as she was coming of age a radical shift in the way women, certainly women like her, white and privileged and circulating in these urban spaces with Mm -hmm. all of this opportunity, she saw the way that women's lives were changing drastically. And so this is kind of the wheelhouse that she spent her life thinking about and not always celebrating, but also really trying to understand the kind of consequences for this really rapid cultural change that just seemed to be, you know, kind of raining down in a early 20th century American life. Yeah. Now, what drew her to Greenwich Village? Was she always a bit of an outsider? Was she artistic or was she aspiring yeah. to be a creative writer or what was what took her there? Well, she was an English major at Radcliffe, and she actually had wanted to be a journalist and did some work as a journalist, and that got complicated later on in her life. I found some letters where she was reflecting on herself as a young woman growing up in Boston, and she said she always wanted to go to Greenwich Village. I mean, that was like the place where all of this literary culture, artistic culture, uh, bohemian behavior, you know, people who were living outside of the norms. And keep in mind, you know, she was brought up in an Irish Catholic household in Boston. Her uh, father was a family doctor. She was raised under the Catholic Church, went to Latin girls school. And so part of her rebellion, right, as a young woman with an education and thinking about kind of breaking with her past was being drawn to like the hotbed of that, certainly on the East Coast. And so that was a place she'd always wanted to go. And the fact that Lindsay Parrott, who was her first husband and who gave her the last name that she kept, um, certainly published under throughout her life, wanted to go to Greenwich Village and start his career as a journalist, Mm. right? That's where you did it in New York City. That's where you would go. And so they were, I think, both drawn to the excitement. Um, She talks in some of her letters and stories, which uh, many of her stories, when she started publishing, I'm getting a little ahead of myself there, but when she started publishing, she often set her stories in the New York that she knew, and that was especially Greenwich Village. So you get wonderful details about the pirate's den and all of these places that the Brevoort bars and speakeasies later and restaurants where people would frequent and just kind of the colorful life. I mean, I, I, I try to imagine what Greenwich Village would have been like in 1923, right? It's just extraordinary to think the people that were living there and the kind of art happenings and the the plays that were being mounted and the feminists mm. that were trying to advocate for kind of new paths for women. It was just like, it had to have felt like the most exciting, cutting edge place in the United States, right? And she wanted to be in the center of things. And so I think she always had that both an artistic, creative side to her and also a rebellious side. And that, I think, was an evidence throughout her young years. And then just Greenwich Village gave her permission to embark on this new life. And I mean, frankly, I don't think she was particularly radical or rebellious in the, if you compared her to the other people living in Greenwich Village at the time. Right, <laughs> it was probably right. a moderating place. In some yeah. Way. How did the news of Greenwich Village get out? I mean, was it portrayed in plays and I guess early films or was it yeah. were there publications that were coming out of Greenwich Village or was it described in articles and how do you think she heard about Greenwich Village That's a great question of course I don't know with certainty the answer except yes there were magazines literary magazines kind of you might consider them almost the equivalent of what might have later been like zines, you know, coming Mm -hmm. that were like more kind of underground alternative publications. Would those have actually reached her in Boston? I don't know. But keep in mind, you know, Boston to New York, you know, this is not a a tremendous difference. Right. I mean, it was reaching, we know from other people, it was reaching Pittsburgh and Nebraska. And, and, you know, it traveled all over. I was just sort of curious. It's sort of, it almost seems like those things can be word of mouth, you know. Well, I do know that during her time at Radcliffe, there were speakers that Mm. came from, like she was in a couple of organizations where they had speakers who came from Greenwich Village, feminists, anarchists, 
some controversially <laughs> uh, that came to the campus. So I yeah. think given the fact that Radcliffe, again, was this kind of one of these emerging seats of women's intellectual life, there would have been, as on any university campus, a kind of circuit of information and sharing of knowledge. And, you know, would she have been taught about these kinds of things in classes? That seems less likely. It seems more likely to me that through her social network and then through her kind of extracurricular activities. She she was like in the socialist club for two semesters, you know, so that mm-hmm. would have been a place where certainly they would have been talking about what was going on in, yes. in Greenwich Village. So I suspect that that is kind of more likely the place that she learned about it through her kind of social network. And, and her future husband went to Princeton. They met at a Princeton prom. And so think about the proximity of Princeton to mm. New York, right? Mm-hmm. So they, they went on dates in the city. So they would go into the city and hang out. And, you know, their dating life took place in Greenwich Village. And so that's where she first was exposed to the city and to all the excitement of what was happening there. Now, it seems as if the pregnancy really complicated her relationship with her husband And maybe we should talk about how that played out. But I'm also curious, just was he, he didn't really want to have a child or didn't want to have a son. And and is it because he was committed to this bohemian ideal or was there some other reason why he didn't want to be a father? So all evidence that I've encountered is that the reason he did not want to have a child out the gate was that he saw them as at the beginning of their careers, they were supporting themselves, they eloped, okay, so they did not go the conventional route of family marriage and start, you know, they were going to break with the old ways, run off and get married without anyone's permission. And he was just starting a career as like a cub reporter. Mm. And he thought that they would be so obligated to lives as, as their parents' generation, right, where you like your child and the woman stays at home with the child. And he he did not want that to weigh down their relationship or his career. Okay, mm-hmm. And so her pregnancy, which I think all evidence suggests that she kept her pregnancy from him until it was too late for him to insist that she have an abortion. And so I think this was a, a very serious breach in his vision of what was going to happen. And that was not the end of their marriage. The end of their marriage, you know, was much more complicated as with anything. It's not just one factor. But I think that was a very significant early rupture where she really wanted to have this child and she did not see it as, you know, ruining their chance at having careers. I mean, keep in mind some of the early discourse in the 1920s about families and child rearing, especially from kind of the feminist quarters, which would have been very kind of vociferous in Greenwich Village, where the kind of hotbed of all of this was taking place, was that, of course, women could work and have children as well. It just took infrastructure to do that, right? You had to have the ability to have somebody basically help you raise your child. And so I think that was where Ursula, at the time, Catherine Parrott, was coming from. And her husband, Lindsay, just saw it as like, man, this is just the anchor Mm. that's going to make our lives incredibly difficult. You can kind of see the seedlings of this type of dramatic situation in that I found it astonishing, a detail that you just conveyed earlier about the high school telling the parents, you can send your daughter here, but only if you commit to letting her go to college if she wants to. You know, you could imagine that a lot of people were probably, a lot of families were probably saying, oh, this is great, a wonderful education for our teenage daughter, but of course, we will expect her to put that to the side once she turns of age and becomes marriageable and and so on. And, And for a school to kind of have to draw the lines around that and say, we want, you know, girls who not only uh, have education, but have can have some ambition and can be around other girls who also are in that same position of can continue with our education if we want. It really kind of suggests there were a lot of generational divides and probably a lot of people still feeling very strongly that there was requirements placed on women. Yeah, you know, there were a lot of competing interests in this question of like, why do you educate women? Mm -hmm. And 
a lot of even places like Radcliffe, when they were talking about what their graduates would go on to do, it wasn't just like, oh, we are a career mill. Like, these are all going to be career women. Part of the discourse is like, man, they're going to be such good wives Mm -hmm. and mothers because they're going to be more educated and they are going to be able to have better conversations with their husbands and raise smarter children and be more engaged with the world. And so it's actually really interesting. I read a bunch of the alumni bulletins that came out of Radcliffe as I followed the updates that Parrot sent in. And it's interesting to see there are women who went on to really interesting careers that came out of her class. But a lot of the women end up writing these notes into the alumni bulletin that are like, I'm in a bridge club and I read a book last week and I wish I was doing more. I mean, people actually say things like that. So you you realize that this is a, a moment in history where like nobody really knows what to do with this question of what women should be allowed to and encouraged to do. And that's exactly what Parrot ended up writing about. I mean, she was really trying to puzzle through the kind of downstream consequences of giving women kind of more permissive, more equal access to everything from from drinking to the vote to education to divorce and what was going to happen to them on the ground. Like it's fine in theory, you know, like, okay, we understand the idea of equality. That's a good ideal. But what happens to the actual women who have to live in a world where women are perceived as equal to men? And she saw that as 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 both complicated and sometimes very detrimental to the women that she knew and that she was experiencing, you know, in the workplace and in the world. Mm. And so we come to the book Ex-Wife. This yeah. is when she was 30. Now she can look back and basically it had been a few years before that her husband, once he found out that he was a father, basically ended up divorcing her and she becomes this ex-wife and she's sort of making her way through Greenwich Village on her own. Yeah. And was Ex-Wife her first book? Was this, had she been sort of publishing articles at this point? Or how big of a surprise was it to people that she had this novel in her? Well, so um, that's a great question. I have a lot of different threads to pull together for this. So first off, of course, her divorce from Lindsay was much more complicated. And it was not like she had a child and then they got divorced. It actually was something on the order of five or six years um, Mm. between those events, although they were separated for a good period of time during that. So basically, once she was divorced, which happened in early 1928, she has to support herself and she has to support a son. I guess Lindsay provided some financial resources for him, but she was really on her own. So her father helped sister, Lucy Towell, who was never married and who helped raise Mark, her son, throughout his life, shuttled him back and forth between Boston and New York. But she went to work at first writing advertising um, for department stores. So Mm. this was a job. She had multiple jobs in this arena. She was trying to get a job as a journalist. But Lindsay, at that point, who had advanced on his career, her first husband, had kind of blackballed her and put the word out that people were not to hire her because he didn't want to deal with her in the workplace. And so she kept having these doors closed. Yeah, it's a pretty insidious move because it's something she really wanted to do and felt qualified to do. She had been an English major. She had done some journalistic work out of college, but she couldn't get a job at a newspaper. So she ended up getting this series of advertising jobs at department stores. And she did not love the work, but she was good at it. And so she kept getting promotions and more money, an office of her own, more power, but she didn't like it. She felt like it was vapid, not intellectually challenging. And so she started writing and she ended up cranking out this novel in early 1929 that was published later that year called Ex-Wife. It was originally called Confessions of an (laughs) Ex-Wife. Needless to say, she was the ex-wife and this was a version of her confession. And it is not autobiography, it is not memoir, but it is based on a lot of what happened to her. So there's a lot of truth in with the fiction. And so this was her first novel, and it was originally published anonymously. You know, this was a shtick. This was a marketing gimmick that was used to build up the kind of sensational content of the novel. But of course, within two seconds of word getting out about the book, her name was attached to it. And so this was her first 
book, and it is a story about marriage, infidelity, divorce, being a single working woman in department store advertising, you'll be surprised to hear. <laughs> and uh, it's really uh, an extraordinary novel of New York City. I think it's mm. one of the great novels of New York City. And it's one of the reasons I'm so glad that people can actually read it today, because the month after my book came out, McNally Editions republished Ex-Wife, and I had nothing to do with it. That was a complete zeitgeist in the air coincidence. But but the good news for your listeners is that they can pick up a copy of it. I had to find mine on eBay when I started doing this <laughs> research years ago. So this became a bestseller and a sensation. And um, it's really uh, an extraordinary novel about women's experiences of you know divorce and work and, and sexual assault and abortion. I mean, the very serious topics written in a beautiful, very kind of of its moment uh, discourse and dialogue. And I I really, one of my kind of pet projects right now is to try to get people who teach at all levels of you know, high school, university, to really consider bringing this novel into their classrooms and teaching it you know, alongside something like Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby, which is a very male-centric novel of the same time and place. I think that they would be wonderful companion pieces. There's a lot to get out of thinking about the difference between these voices and experiences side by side. Okay, let's take a quick break. And during the break, I'm going to read uh, a passage from the ex-wife for our, so our listeners can hear her voice, and that way they'll know what we're talking about when we come back after the break. So let's do that now. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes... The Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app, or Wondery Kids Plus, in Apple Podcasts. Ex-Wife by Ursula Parrott Chapter 1 My husband left me four years ago. Why, I don't precisely understand, and never did. Nor, I suspect, does he. Nowadays, when the catastrophe that it seemed to be and its causes are matters equally inconsequential, I am increasingly disposed to the belief that he brought himself to the point of deserting me because I made such outrageous scenes at first mention of the possibility. Of course, during the frantic six months that preceded his actual departure, he presented reasons for it by dozens. I remember some of them. At times he said I had lost my looks. At other times he said I had nothing but looks to recommend me. He said I took no interest in his interests. He said also that I insisted on thrusting myself into all of them. He said I was spiritless or temperamental, had no moral sense, or was a prude. He said he wanted to marry the woman he really loved, and that once rid of me, he would not marry anyone else on a bet. In the four years since, I have listened to the causes given for the dismal ends of many marriages— and have come to believe my husband's list as sensible as most. He grew tired of me, hunted about for reasons to justify his weariness, and found them. They seemed valid to him. I suppose if I had tired of him, I should have done the same thing. But I was not tired of him, so I fought his going ruthlessly and very stupidly. I was sure that if I fought, I would win. I have never been as sure of myself since as I was then when I was twenty-four. 
No stirring of any ethical scruples about possessiveness or idea of the futility of coercing emotion complicated my efforts to keep what I wanted. At first, I think, I pretended to high motives, stay for the sake of our families, and so on. Later, as I grew panicky, I experimented with argument, rage, anguish, hysteria, and threats of suicide, and refused to admit to myself, until five minutes before he left, that he really might go, in spite of everything. While he finished packing, I sat, beginning to believe it. I tried to think of some last-minute miracle to manage, considered slashing my wrists so that he would have to go get a doctor, and then to stay until I recovered. But I recognized, in a world that had suddenly become an altogether incredible place, that he might just walk out and leave me to die of the slashes. I hoped I looked devastated. I hoped I looked lovely. Then I remembered that the armchair in which I sat was a wedding present from his Aunt Janet, and wondered what one did with a husband's relative's wedding presents when a husband left. In New York, one sells them to impecunious young married friends, ultimately. The lamp beside me was among the first of the modernistic ones. I remembered that Wanamaker's had not been paid for it. The sound of trunk lids closing stopped. He came in. He stood there looking handsome and stubborn and unhappy. I was assailed by recollections of how good-looking I had thought him. First time we met, a house party at New Haven, four, no, five springtimes, I'm going to get a cab for my things, he said. Peter, don't go, I said. What's the use of that, he said. We regarded each other, and suddenly, after six months in which I had always managed to find one more protest, relevant or otherwise, there were no more. I ached. We had loved each other for three years and hated each other half the fourth. It seemed such a long way to have journeyed from a gay and confident beginning. Apparently, he had a few last words to offer, if I could manage none. He suppressed two or three beginnings. When will you divorce me, Patricia? I said, on the far side of hell. He shrugged. He was not even angry. He just looked tired. Have it your own way, Patty. He had not called me Patty for months. Pat, casually. Patricia, furiously. Then he said, Well, don't mourn me long, old dia. He came and patted my hair and went out. My last and silliest inspiration arrived. I thought, if he doesn't get his trunks, he can't go. And I bolted the apartment door. He came back with the cab driver and knocked. I sat very still. He shouted, If you don't open that door, I'll break it in. He would have done it. So I opened the door. He threw his keys on a table. I shan't ever need these, he said. I went back to sitting in the armchair. Trunks and bags and taxi man and husband departed noisily. I thought, This is the end. Why don't I cry or something? Chapter 2 In that lazy space on Sunday between late breakfast and time to dress for a cocktail party, Lucia, with whom I was sharing an apartment, tried to define ex-wife. Not every woman who used to be married is one. There are women about whom it is more significant to know that they work at this or that, or like to travel, or go to symphony concerts than to know that they were once married to someone or other. She looked at me reflectively. You're an ex-wife, Pat, because it is the most important thing to know about you. Explains everything else, that you once were married to a man who left you. You're one, too, by that definition, that you once were married to Arch explains most things about you, I said. Yes, but I convalesce somewhat. One isn't an ex-wife if one's in love again, or even if one never thinks about one's husband anymore. How many years does it take to get to that stage? 
I asked. I had been to dinner with Pete the evening before and knew that I would be miserable for a week. There, there, child, she said. You'll feel better tomorrow. She began again. An ex-wife is a woman with a crick in the neck from looking back over her shoulder at her matrimony. I contributed. An ex-wife's a woman who's always prattling at parties about the joys of being independent while she's sober and beginning on either the virtues or the villainies of her departed husband on one drink too many. An ex-wife, Lucia said, is just a surplus woman like those the sociologists used to worry about during the war. Nobody worries about an ex-wife, though, except her family, or her husband, if she is one of those who took alimony, I said. We don't need to be worried about that yet, darling. We're too much in demand. Wait till we're forty, if we're not dead of insufficient sleep before then. I'll be dead of drinking bad absinthe, I announced resignedly. Lucia protested. I really wish you would stop drinking that stuff. It will hurt your looks. But her voice was languid. We were just talking. Pretty soon it would be time to make up one's face and put on a velvet frock and things would start happening fast again. It was not a bad life while things happened fast. And they usually did. I tried one more definition. Ex-wives... Young and handsome ex-wives like us illustrate how this freedom for women turned out to be God's greatest gift to men. We laughed. The winter sun came warmly in over our shoulders. It was pleasant sitting there. Peter and I had fought like hell the night before. Don't think about him, said Lucia. I can always tell when you are. It does horrid things to your mouth. She talked about ex-wives again, abruptly. I felt bitter. After a while, I said, An ex-wife is a young woman for whom the eternity promised in the marriage ceremony is reduced to three years, or five, or eight. Lucia Brought up under the tattered banners of love everlasting and all for purity, we have to adapt ourselves to life in the era of the one-night stand. Then she remembered that she was trying to make me feel gayer. Darling, what's the difference? We are awfully popular, and we know endless men, and we go everywhere. They all want to sleep with us, I said, so as soon as they get here for dinner, they begin arranging to stay for breakfast. And that isn't very important either, Pat. You know it isn't. You're just feeling flat today. What are you going to wear? I told her and went to dress. When I came downstairs again, she had mixed two martinis. I felt better when I had mine. After that, Max came. We gave him a martini and he said, Here's to crime and other pleasures. He always said that for a toast. Then he inquired about our health and our jobs, I suppose because jobs seemed important to him. They were not to us. We both did advertising. Lucia was in an agency. I was fashion copywriter in a department store. We averaged about a hundred dollars a week apiece, with odds and ends of freelance writing. We had what we called a garret on Park Avenue. The rent was a hundred and seventy-five dollars a month, and we spent most of the rest of our money on clothes. We never saved anything. Lucia said she used to save money when she was married. So did I. Once I saved five dollars a week for a year, for a rug that would be nice enough to keep when we had a house. After Peter left, I sold the rug for forty dollars and bought a pair of shoes and a hat with it. While I was married, I saved money and made plans for the next fifty years and so on. Afterward, I did not make plans for the month after next. It seemed such a waste of time. Okay, we're back with Marsha Gordon. So, Marsha, I was so struck by the voice in this book. I was expecting it to feel much uh, much more dated than I found it to be. 
it, it she, yeah. she really, uh, it, it feels so fresh. Uh, and I don't yeah. know exactly what that's from. Maybe I'm thinking it's closer to someone like a Dorothy Parker, or maybe someone that I could imagine writing for a magazine at the time than something I would expect of someone who kind of sits down and, and clears her throat and sets out to write the great American novel. Yeah, I think there's so many reasons that the novel feels so contemporary. I mean, one of the things that I really realized as I've been reflecting on Parrot and Fitzgerald, um, just to return to that comparison, is that when I read Fitzgerald, it's it's very firmly a novel of 1925. Mm-hmm. And when I read Ex-Wife, it is both that and it strikes me as still incredibly timely and, and relevant. I mean, it yeah. has a contemporary quality. And maybe it's just that it is the plight of women um, and women's lives in this country, that there is just an ongoing battle over women's bodies, over what women are allowed and encouraged to do. And Parrot was talking about that almost 100 years ago. But there are aspects of what she is kind of writing about and thinking about that are still with us. They're unresolved, right? So these are ongoing issues. I also think that her ability to use both a voice that is colloquial and personal, the novel moves you along so quickly, right? This is not like a a trudge, like like just, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, I can't believe, like, oh, another page of this. It's (laughs) fast paced. It captures the energy of New York. And I think that's one of the things that I love about her voice is that it's interior, the way that it's narrated, and yet she's always kind of reflecting on her environment, like the details about about New York City establishments, the details about fashion, the details about mm. um, what it was like to get ready and you know go out for a night on the town. It's just a rich, textured, layered novel, and I think it's it's such an original voice. I mean, to me, this is a, a kind of a quintessential novel, very much in the spirit of its time. It mm-hmm. captures it in theme, in character, in voice, in dialogue, in the kind of textures of her time and place. And I, I think it's quite extraordinary. And it's even experimental. There's this chapter where she includes musical bars from George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue it, on the page as a way to reflect on the energy of New York City. And when I got to that part of the novel the first time I read it, I I was just kind of stunned. That's such an experimental postmodern move, right? Mm. To put actual bars of music notes in your novel as a way, I mean, anyone in 1929 would have been able to conjure Rhapsody in Blue in their mind and to create kind of an audio track for a chapter. Mm. These are innovative and kind of beautiful parts of her writing. I think this is a a very rich text in terms of thinking about form and language. Yeah, I was so struck, too, by what, when you say it feels timeless, we do have books like this. I mean, I was thinking of of books like Fear of Flying by Erica Jong or or The Whole Sex in the City. I mean, this is like the same paradigm of the Candace Bushnell columns and and the whole Sex in the City series. Bridget Jones is right in this same area. It's this young woman who is trying to make it in the city, who is also dealing with men. There's a lot of girl talk and a lot of yep. friends. You have you have friends that you could share things with, and but you're also yeah. dealing with forces that are arrayed against you, especially because you're a woman. And the, the divorce and that aspect of it and the biological clock and that aspect of it. And it just... It's almost like uh, you could tell someone this is Sex in the City in the Roaring Twenties and you wouldn't be that far off. No, I think that's a great one-liner way to describe it. And I think it's completely accurate. I, mean, I, I can't tell you how many times Sex in the City has come up in conversations about this book. It's a fantastic point of reference for this. And I do think that that is precisely the world in which uh, the world that she's both experiencing as a young woman, by which I mean now outside of the novel, Ursula Parrott, and then the world that she is imagining here. And I think the relationships that she has, and in particular, there's a relationship between the protagonist, who's named Patricia, and her friend Lucia, who is uh, an experienced divorcee who helps to mentor right. Patricia <laughs> as she navigates her divorce and kind of teaches her 
about like, you know, you're going to be okay. You just have to kind of go through this process. Come live with me. I will take care of you. I will introduce you to men. This is this kind of man. This is that kind of man. I mean, there, it's such an interesting imagination of new types of women that 10 years ago, these women didn't exist, right? These are new kinds of women. And that's one of the reasons but I think this novel struck a nerve. The New York Times reviewer, who was not particularly a fan of the novel, he was very dismissive of it in many ways and makes this comment about how his wife picked it up off the couch and her girlfriend crowded around her and they were eagerly turning the pages. That was meant as an insult, I think, mm. by the mm-hmm. way. But he said, like, look, Ursula Parrott has identified this category of woman that didn't exist before, the ex-wife. And I loved when I read that because it's really true. It's not that ex-wives didn't exist. That term had been used. There were ex-wives. But she was really the first one to kind of imagine like a genre of woman called the ex-wife, ex-wives as a group. And they couldn't have existed until there were enough of them, right, to be identified as a type. And obviously in a place like New York City, where you have a much more kind of progressive, accepting, tolerant culture. We're not talking about the Midwest. We're not talking about the South. I mean, this is a phenomenon of a big city like New York, where there are women kind of everywhere who are out on their own for one reason or another, following the dissolving of their first marriages. And Parrot in her personal life realized this only when she went to work at that department store and she thought, God, I'm the only one here who has to like work to support herself and her son and like poor me. And then she said she realized after a few days, every woman working there was in the same boat. Mm. They were all divorced. <laughs> they were all out there, you know, having to earn their wages. And that's when she really started thinking like, okay, this is a phenomenon that needs to be explored. And that's what that first book grew out of was kind of writing a version of her story, but using that text as a space to raise these questions about what was happening to women in an age of divorce, in an age of permissiveness, in an age where women were not revered the way women of her mother's or grandmother's generation, even though they had greater opportunity, there were some negative consequences that came with that. And she also imagines those in this novel. I think there is also part of this, the paradigmatic version of a woman in her situation is, well, I'm going to write a bestseller about all this and then I'll become a famous celebrity and I'll get rich. And that's actually what she did. So how did she adapt to life as a bestseller? I mean, at the same time, she's right on the verge of the stock market crash. So there maybe wasn't too much time to enjoy it. But what happened to her after she became famous for writing The Ex-Wife? Well, actually, her book was published at the most magical moment because she got her first big paycheck basically in October 1929. (laughs) So not early enough that she could invest it in the stock market, right? So you could imagine a scenario where she gets this huge check two months earlier, and then maybe it evaporates. But she gets it just as the country is descending into this financial mess. And so she has a lot of financial responsibilities. She actually kind of went into debt writing the book. She borrowed money. She quit her job in order to dedicate herself to writing full time. So she borrowed money from a friend. She had to repay. But look, this was a lot of money. And it was a lot of money that came fast because the book sold at multiple printings. She immediately started getting big checks from Hollywood. Mm. Ex-Wife was turned into The Divorcee, starring Norma Shearer major film for MGM in 1930. So this happens very quickly. Parrot goes to Hollywood in 1931. She starts in 1930 working for Hollywood Studios in Astoria out of New York. So she's making hand over fist money, like coming her way. And she's, after the first book comes out, second book comes out, the third book comes out. She's publishing stories and serialized novels in the magazines. And she is, at first, completely overwhelmed by the attention, the celebrity, come to this literary tea, do this interview. Here's Mm -hmm. Walter Winchell wants to speak with you on the radio. We need your picture for this magazine article. 
And she reflects on the fear she has from the start of being so distracted by these things that she can't be a serious writer, that she's being pulled in too many directions that mm. like literary teas where you let all the men flirt with you and right. you know that that was not nurturing for the soul and yet she liked to live big she liked to spend money she liked to drink she struggled with alcoholism throughout her adult life and so like so many people who get caught up in a kind of maelstrom of mm. success and fame and visibility she really struggled with figuring out a way to navigate that in a healthy fashion. And so I think she did get sucked up by some of the excesses, which she was already rebellious spirit. But then you imagine you have basically unlimited amounts of money, right? And yeah. you know, she tries to do some things to ground herself. So she buys an estate in Connecticut, just outside of the city, where she installs her sister and her son, so that she can easily get to it from New York. So she keeps hotel apartments in the city and goes out to the country to spend time with them. She does this as a kind of moderating attempt to have a country home where she had a garden and where she could have a kind of quieter life. But she's always drawn back to the kind of energy and the chaos of the city. And so I think she struggled with the success. Uh, and certainly it granted her things. Like she was able to do what she loved doing, which was writing. But sometimes that came at a great cost in terms of just the demands of deadlines and the demands placed on her in terms of productivity were pretty serious. And she worked with a wonderful agent, George Bai, who tried to kind of mentor her and encourage her to focus on craft. And she took her writing very seriously, but um, she kept wanting to write, I think, her what she imagined was her great American novel mm. and she never felt like she really did it mm. so that was something she kept saying I just I need to carve out more time I need to car I need to pay these bills I need to pay this off and then then I'm going to be able to write it and she took a couple stabs but she never felt like she hit the mark fully yeah sounds like she was married multiple times and she ended up with some scandals swirling around her and it sounds like yeah. things got kind of sad by the end. Yeah, you know, she did. She married and divorced uh, four times. And one of the things that really strikes me about her is that she was both incredibly optimistic and incredibly resilient. I mean, this is a woman who really kept no matter what happened in her personal life, no matter how disastrous, she dealt with a lot of things, personal health issues, alcohol, a lot of failed relationships, and increasingly a lot of public scandals as her life was falling apart in the late 1940s and early 1950s. And I'm just blown away by the fact that she always tried to pick herself up Mm. You know, dust yourself off and start all over again to you know, use the words from a song of the era. And she always tried to do that through writing. So she would hit these kind of dark moments, lose an agent, have to return a cash advance because she didn't make a deadline. You know, she ended up homeless at one point and kind of worked her way back up through the Salvation Army, through a low rent apartment. And she started, she tried to write again, tried to publish again. She relied on that one talent that she knew she had and on this ambition that she had to kind of keep herself in the literary marketplace and to write unsparingly about what she was seeing in the world around her. And that included towards the end writing a memoir, um, which she started. I don't believe that she ever finished it. I wish more than anything, those manuscript pages would turn up somewhere because I know she was trying to write it, but she never turned it in and never finished it. So yeah, she had her share of hard knocks and definitely had some difficult and dark years. And, and part of it was she never could uh, achieve a kind of stability that she wanted, but she wasn't very good at kind of doing the things that she needed to do to achieve that thing. She liked living a little bit on the edge. And she, I think, enjoyed the adventure and the chaos. And she could recover from that in her earlier years. But I think that got harder as she got older. Mm -hmm. Fitzgerald, you had this theory, and I, I think Hemingway, even even though Hemingway was not always very charitable to toward Fitzgerald's and his reputation, yeah. he, he agreed with this, that 
one of the problems was that Fitzgerald had been so identified in everyone's mind with the jazz age as a yeah. young writer that they didn't accept him after the crash. And it was viewed as like, well, that's too frothy for the current age. Even if Fitzgerald started writing about something else, he was just kind of pigeonholed that way. And I'm wondering if something similar happened to her or how yeah. it is that the ex-wife kind of fell out of favor during the 30s and 40s and why it, was, why it wasn't something that people were returning to, or my guess is it fell out of print and she fell out of kind of the public eye. And, and yeah. what happened? Well, it's such a complicated question. And I do spend some time writing about this in the book, but there's a few things. First off, x like continues to be republished into the 1940s, but it's, you know, republished in those like matte back editions that Dell did, kind of mm. cheap paperbacks, although it is also published in multiple languages all over the world. But yeah, it never stayed in a kind of sustained imprint. It never entered a canon. It was never taught in classes. And I and I think a few things happened. One is nobody tended to Ursula Parrott's legacy or to her literary reputation mm -hmm. while she was still alive. And I think, frankly, a lot of the kind of best known male writers of the day, like Hemingway and Fitzgerald, Faulkner, I mean, they had, that was really always in place. There were people who were trying to caring for right. their literary reputation. There were editors, there were friends. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. And so the second thing is that because she ended up writing so much for the magazines, she was really pigeonholed by many people. I, I see this especially in male reviewers of the time period as like a women's writer of inconsequential mm. romance stories. And it's so interesting to me because her stories uh, you know, I read a story that she wrote alongside a story that Fitzgerald wrote, and there's equal parts romance. I've done a kind of game where I like pull out a paragraph from a Fitzgerald story and like who wrote this, Fitzgerald or Parrot? And it's a toss up for some of the more romantic stories. They, it could be from either of them because they have a similar interest in kind of romance and romantic relationships as like the kind of central core of the novel. But for Parrot, her stories are always cynical. She uses the romance plot, like not to create romantic stories, but to create stories where things fall apart because women are more successful than men, because there's kind of a disagreement about the way the kind of the power dynamic of the relationship should work out. But people didn't see beyond the kind of veneer at the time. And also, I think, you know, she wrote about so many other things. And I, I'm partly, I feel kind of guilty of this myself and that I really focus on her writing that was about kind of male-female relationships. But she wrote about lots of other things. I mean, she wrote stories about the Underground Railroad. She wrote stories about nefarious Nazi plots during World War II. I mean, mm. she did a lot of other writing. And I think it just kind of dropped by the wayside. And she, yeah, I think she just got kind of pigeonholed and forgotten. And I will say that um, in 1989, there was a reprint of Ex-Wife that Francine Prose wrote an introduction to. So there was an attempt uh, in the late 1980s for like a little bit of a parrot revival. And um, you know that book too fell out of print, but that was the first used copy I bought of Ex-Wife when I looked on eBay was that 1989 reprint. And Ursula Parrot's son, Mark, wrote the foreword to that, and that is also included in the McNally Editions reprint. And I think it's an extraordinary piece of writing. It really gives a very thoughtful reflection on what it was like to grow up with Ursula Parrott as his mother, and also on the way that she, that she kind of rose and fall over the course of her life. So uh, bottom line is, and there's plenty of other things that we could talk about, but for the sake of concision, I think those are the two major things. And I just my hope is that as people learn more about her and have the opportunity to read her writing for themselves, that she comes back into the conversation because I do think she deserves a place. This novel deserves a place alongside a novel like The Great Gatsby. And I think if people read it, they will be pretty blown away by what a fantastic novel it is and how engaging it is as something that you can bring into the classroom. Yeah, I agree. It, it really is exciting to think that 
people have this new, it'll be new to them, window into, it's such a fun era. I think a lot of people, if they had to choose, what's a decade I, I wouldn't mind spending some time in? They might have London in the 60s or, you know, there's always yeah. these eras that just sort of jump out. And New York in the 1920s is definitely one of those decades that people are, a lot of people are familiar with and just a very fun period. But to have basically uh, that of the voices that we already know uh, so well, primarily Scott Fitzgerald's, to have like a, a Nora Ephron type of individual who is commenting on the way things were for women and women in this situation in particular, it's just a really good addition to the way we think of that era and the literature from it. Yeah, you know, and the other thing though, Jack, is that it's such a fun era, agree. But what Parrot was writing about were the not fun parts of mm, the era, right? Yeah, because right. even though she's addicted to New York City, I mean, Patricia talked about the fact that she just like, you know, she loves the city. She loves the energy of the city. Yeah. But she's also fully aware of the trappings of the city and how damaging that's what this book is about, like all the traps that are everywhere for the female characters and how they try to kind of navigate them and survive in this atmosphere. And that's a lot of parrot stories are really about that. So it's both the romance of the 1920s and also the reality, which is it was not just, you know, freewheeling, fun, dancing, speakeasies till dawn, but there's a lot of kind of consequential negative aspects of that life and lifestyle as well. And I think Ursula Parrott played that out in her personal life and also dramatized this in her novels. Yeah. You get the martinis and you get the hangover. That's right. That's absolutely right. You <laughs> and you it. get, you know, issues like abortion and alcoholism and adultery and, and yeah. you know, the, the difficulties of marriage and the breakup of marriage and misogyny. And I mean, it's it's a novel. It's not just a Hollywood version of, you know, two hours of romping through parties and, and so on. But it gives you like a, a full picture of what it's like to be alive in that era. Yeah. And, you know, the other nice thing about it is that you can also get the Hollywood version, right? Because right, the, you know, divorcee. <laughs> the, the Divorcee is such an interesting film. It's a pre-code film. So it's made at a time where it was possible to push some of the kind of content into more questionable moral territory. I'm saying that, you know, within quotes. But, um, but so you can also kind of see and experience the way it was filtered through this major popular culture outlet. So Parrot wrote, there's 10 films, by the way, that were based on Parrot stories. So this was not, she was not a one trick pony. This mm. was not like a one off. She was a very successful writer who had a very successful Hollywood career and adaptation record as well. But even if you just, even if she just had ex-wife and even if it, there was just the divorcee based on it, those two texts alone, when you think about the ripple effects in the culture, the way this was like the water cooler book of 1929, um, The Divorcee was tremendously popular, tremendously successful. It really helped movie theaters at the start of the Depression get people in to buy tickets. Movie theaters were having like their best weeks because of this movie. And mm. so just these two texts alone and the way they imagine this um, kind of universe of characters and issues and the way um, the divorcee handles some of the material that, you know, was kind of uh, kind of on the edge of representable, the things that are not representable in the film as well. All of these make for kind of really awesome pairing of the 1929 and 1930 work of literature and film that I think uh, people would also really enjoy experiencing. The book is called Becoming the Ex-Wife, The Unconventional Life, and Forgotten Writings of Ursula Parrott. Marsha Gordon, thank you so much for joining me on The History of Literature. Thank you for having me, Jack. And that's going to do it for this episode of The History of Literature. My thanks to Marsha Gordon for joining us. Her book is a fascinating ride. Maybe read Ex-Wife, too, while you're at it. These forgotten women of literature never fail to intrigue and inspire me. They were there too, people. They were there too. We will have F. Scott Fitzgerald next time. There's someone who hasn't been forgotten. 
But has he been in... Uh... <laughs> oh, I was building. I was building and then I got excited and I screwed things up. There, let me try again. There's someone who hasn't been forgotten. But has he been under... <laughs> I just screwed it up again. <laughs> One more time. We will have F. Scott Fitzgerald next time. There's someone who hasn't been forgotten, but has he been understood? Can he be understood? We'll ask Arthur Crystal, who's spent a lot of time thinking about this. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.